our Bibles, if you would, to the epistle to the Galatians chapter 2. And I hope that you are enjoying the study of Galatians as much as I do and you find something here that interests you. Uh, It's my, as you know, my method to sort of dig out everything that we can out of a passage and uh, sometimes that makes for slow going and it takes us a long time to finish up these chapters. Um, perhaps perhaps that will help you to understand, though, the, the problems that, as a pastor, you go through when you do a verse-by-verse study because I filter through a lot of material and I have to decide from that what is it that's going to help you and what, what can we leave out, what should we uh, keep in. And uh, sometimes it's just a process. You just have to ask the Lord to to show you what you should say. And well, we do that all the time, of course. But um, it's it's hard sometimes to pick out uh, what things to leave out because there's just so much here. Especially when we're talking about a very important uh, scripture uh, like we have here in this second chapter, really the entire book of Galatians. Because we're speaking about the main core doctrine of Christianity. And this is the one that so many people get wrong. And what happens is these lots of people that use the name Christian aren't really Christian at all. Because they are wrong on the very central issue of what we do as a church. And that's to preach the gospel of Christ. And if you can't get that right, there's nothing else that really matters. So if you want to know, what is it that separates Berean Baptist Church from many of the churches around us? Well, it would be this issue, a fundamental issue, this fundamental doctrine, and that is justification by faith alone. Uh, Galatians addresses this doctrine, and it clarifies it. Uh, Underlying all of this is the doctrine of justification, but there are some other things that we found as we go along here that are important issues and topics to talk about as well. Uh, One of those is Paul's calling to be an apostle. And he begins the book of Galatians with a defense of his apostleship. Uh, There are some who didn't believe that he was a true apostle because he was called at a later time. The original 12 were called by Christ during his ministry. Paul was called at a different time. And so there were some who thought he was not a real, he was not a real apostle. And so if he is wrong on the doctrine of justification, then of course we know that he can't be an apostle of Christ. But here, actually, it turns out to be a great opportunity for Paul to prove his apostleship, that he had authority as an apostle, and he shows it by taking authority over another apostle, and his authority went unchallenged. Now, our study tonight, again, is in verses 11 through 14, and this is after Paul had explained Uh, to the Galatians how there was a conference in Jerusalem that settled this principle of justification by faith alone. Only the practical application of the doctrine was really very slow to come around. Now we look at our text verses beginning in verse 11. It says, But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. For before that certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. And the other Jews dissembled likewise with him, insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation. But when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, 
If thou, being a Jew, livest after the manner of the Gentiles, and not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? Well, these verses give us some great insight into the difficulties the early church had with overcoming the prejudice that had been ingrained in them. And I'm speaking here about the uh, Jewish Christians overcoming that prejudice that had been ingrained in them against Gentiles uh, that had been taught to them from the time that they were very young and really had carried over hundreds and hundreds of years of teaching. Our Sunday morning series in Matthew parallels what we find here in this part of Galatians where in chapter 15 of Matthew Jesus talks about how the Jews had replaced the commands of scripture with their own traditions and thought that those traditions were of greater authority than the word of God now in the Old Testament it does tell us there that Gentiles would be included in the covenant of grace But the Jewish Christians were slow to understand that. And when they finally did come around to it, at least marginally, they thought, well, if Gentiles can be saved, then surely what must happen is they must be brought under the old Mosaic law. They have to keep the rights and the customs of the Jewish people. And the apostles had some trouble with that. And in our studies, we've seen how the Jerusalem church was even slow to come around and held on to some of those old practices uh, for a long time after Jesus was crucified. Well, Paul was appointed as the apostle to the Gentiles, and through his many years of contact with them and witnessing to them, uh, God had graciously allowed him to put aside his prejudices and so he conquered all the objections that he had in the flesh and he treated Gentiles as equals in the faith. The council in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15 was very helpful here in deciding the matter of circumcision and saying that it was not a means of justification and so they refuted legalistic justification and they did establish the doctrine of justification by faith alone and so that principle was upheld they were all in agreement about that but there were times when the practice of the Jewish Christians did not match the principle And this is the case that we find here in this scripture as Paul describes Peter's trip to Antioch where he differed in practice from his principle and the principle of justification by faith alone. Now, we've noted in the uh, previous messages that one of the problems here is the problem of diet, the problem of what Gentiles ate. And uh, it, it... the first point here was the dietary custom of the Jews. There, there were certain foods that they could eat and certain foods that they couldn't eat. And the Gentiles were used to eating anything they could put in their mouths as long as it didn't poison them. And to the Jews, that was just an utterly disgusting habit. And that's because they considered a lot of the foods that the Gentiles ate to be unclean, that they were defiling. And to eat those foods or even at times to touch those foods, was sinful. Now, many of the customs that the Jews had were added to the law over these many centuries. The scribes and the rabbis and all of those that were teaching these things over hundreds of years had added all of these uh, many different traditions into into their customs, and they had no foundation whatsoever in Scripture. 
But there were others that were ceremonial laws that we do find in the Old Testament. They were part of the law, and those were done away with the crucifixion of Christ. And when we talk about ceremonial law, the chief one that we've been dealing with here is the issue of circumcision. That was done away with when Christ uh, was crucified. So those were the laws that were suspended. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and just to show you that circumcision doesn't mean anything any longer, he said, Is any man called being circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Is any called in uncircumcision? Let him not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing but the keeping of the commandments of God. Well, the Jewish Christians were working their way through all of this, and this matter of circumcision was one that was very, very hard for them to abandon. But I suppose, without going into a lot of detail, that out of sight, out of mind is applicable to this. So the problem in the passage then that we're dealing with here is how that Peter conducted himself, the conduct of Peter when he was eating with Gentile Christians and the fellowship that he had with them. So Peter had made this long trip from Jerusalem to Antioch and when he did, he he came there and he did a very good job of blending into the Gentile society. Of course, he was thoroughly convinced that... uh, God would save Gentiles because he was the first apostle sent specifically to a Gentile, and that was to Cornelius. And so we would expect that Peter would do exactly as he did, that when he arrived in Antioch, he joined the Gentiles at their table, he sat and he ate the very same things that they ate. But then there was a delegation of Pharisaical Jews that came from Jerusalem behind him, and when they arrived there, Peter was afraid to offend them. And thinking perhaps that he might lose some of his prestige and, and um, lose some of his influence with the Jews back home, he withdrew from the Gentile Christians and stopped eating with them at their table. So in essence, what Peter had done was to back down from his principles because he was afraid. He wanted to save face and he wanted to hide his true beliefs because those would have made him unpopular with all of his friends back in Jerusalem. Now this was a very big problem in the eyes of Paul because he's the apostle to the Gentiles. And what Peter's actions did was to deny Christian doctrine. This is a violation of this Christian principle, that core doctrine of justification by faith alone. And so Peter, in his practice, denied true doctrine. Well, what that did was to prompt a very serious action by Paul. This is the third part that we want to talk about tonight, and that is the censure of Peter, the censure. Uh, Peter's hypocritical action upset Paul, and so I, I think that Paul was filled with righteous indignation. And so in verse number 11, he says, But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face, because he was to be blamed. And then going down to verse 14, Paul says, I said unto Peter before them all. Well, I want to save the discussion for this part, uh, getting into the last part of the message. But we do have to ask the question here now, why is Paul so ticked over this? What, what is the importance of this stern reaction that he gives to Peter's hypocrisy? Well, first we have to consider Peter's inconsistency. 
Now you see the words dissembled and dissimulation in verse number 13. That means the same as hypocrisy. It means to play the hypocrite. And the last part of verse 14 describes the hypocrisy. He said, if thou being a Jew livest after the manner of the Gentiles and not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? And so Paul says, Peter, you can't have it both ways. How can you live like a Gentile and then turn around and tell the Gentiles that they have to live like Jews? It's a nonsensical inconsistency. So what Peter did was to act against his own convictions. He pretended to be something that he wasn't. He pretended to believe something that he didn't. And his beliefs had the effect of throwing truth off the track. In the beginning of the 14th verse, Paul said, But when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel. So he tells us there that what Peter's actions did was to affect the truth of the gospel. And instead of bringing people to the truth, he was leading them away from it. Now what this would do was, what it would naturally do is cause the Gentiles to believe that they were doing something wrong that what they were doing was displeasing to God and they should stop eating these foods that they were eating. Well, what does that do? Well, in effect, it says that their faith alone is not what made them right with God, that they're not going to be right with God unless they follow Peter's example and go along with these Jewish customs of eating only kosher. So what they would do is imitate Peter's actions and secure their salvation by keeping those same ceremonial laws that the Judaizers insisted on in the first place. Well, that's nothing other than undermining, complete undermining, of the decision that was made by the council in Acts chapter 15. Now, we know that they were dealing with the issue of circumcision, but I made the point that while we were talking over that council, that circumcision stands good for any point of the law. The principle is the same. So is there a law that can justify? And when you do something like changing what you eat and saying you have to eat certain foods or you won't be right with God, all you've done is just put another label on the same problem. Same issue here. So... It throws the Gentile Christians off. And what it did was to make all of these gains that Paul had with them, teaching them faith in Christ alone, all of that's thrown off by Peter's foolish action. Now, what Peter did here was he would rather save his own skin and his reputation uh, by playing the hypocrite. And that shows just how careful that you have to be in everything that you do. You need to be aware of this, that... Uh, young Christians especially are watching what you do and your actions become an example for their righteousness or they can be excused for their sinfulness. Then it also had another effect and that is the inconsistency reinforced the Judaizers' opinions. Now, Now he's destroyed the gains that Paul had made with or that the Jewish Christians had made uh, the the ones that were in Antioch, they were struggling with the issue anyway of eating with the Gentiles. So how long would it take them to finally get to the position that Paul was in where it didn't bother him any any longer, that they could suppress those urges to follow the very thing that they've been taught all of their lives? So Peter's action also hurts in that manner. You know, it's sort of like if you have a Christian that drinks alcohol And he sits down and drinks a beer in front of another Christian that was saved out of that, maybe someone that was enslaved to that rot gut stuff by alcoholism. 
It's sort of like that because how is that going to affect that Christian uh, when he does that in front of him? It's the same type of a principle here. It comes down to a very simple thing here. You can't go against truth and expect that you'll ever have a righteous outcome. So we have to be consistent in obeying the truth. Well, this leads into a into the matter of why this is so serious in the case of Peter. And this is because of Peter's influence. Peter had a lot of influence with with other Christians. Well, who is Peter? Well, we go back and we take a look at his career from the time that he was chosen by Jesus to be an apostle. And we find there that, that Peter had risen to the top being the most influential apostle of all. He was in the inner circle with Jesus that included James and John. Those are the ones that were closest to Jesus. And within that inner circle, Peter is the one who became the spokesman for the entire group. He's always up front and he's always the spokesman. In Matthew 16, when Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? Who do you think that I am? Peter was the one who answered the question, and he was answering for the entire group. He said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. When Jesus was crucified and when Judas had fallen, it was Peter that got up in front of the congregation of the church that was existent at that time, and he said, We need to take a vote to replace Judas as an apostle. Peter's the one who took the lead in that. As you read the book of Acts, you find the entire book falls into two divisions, the Acts of Peter and the Acts of Paul. So we see that people are watching Peter. He had great influence with all Christians. Now, this turns out, of course, to be a major argument for Paul in vindicating his apostleship. Uh, The purpose of this particular section that we've been studying is to show that he was equal to the other apostles in authority. But for now, the significance of the rebuke is just the the huge amount of influence that Peter wielded over these learning Christians. If Peter did the right thing, then they would do the right thing. If Peter did the wrong thing, then they would follow Peter and they would do the wrong thing. And there we find part of the influence of ministers. People trust ministers. People trust pastors. And when a pastor has lodged truth into a person's mind, people stick by that. It's very hard to dislodge them from the truth. But on the other hand, if a pastor stands in the pulpit and preaches error, people learn the error, and it's also very difficult to dislodge them from their errors. They will maintain those. And it's hard if another pastor comes, uh, a later pastor, if he comes, it's hard to move them out of that if they've been taught something in error. Well, I think all of us have to consider that as Christians. All of us have influence. If you have a position in the church, you have influence. If you're a Sunday school teacher, you have influence. If you're in the Pioneer Club, you have influence. Deacons have influence. People are scrutinizing everything that we do. And some people will say, well, I don't want that scrutiny. I don't want people to watch me and follow me. Sorry. That's what you get in a church. People look at you. They watch what you do. And so some will say, well, I don't want to be influential. Then I'd have to say, why not? Why don't you want to be? I mean, if you're following Christ and you're doing the right thing and you're obeying him, isn't it your desire that people would follow your example and obey Christ as well? I mean, don't you want to be a model Christian? I would think that we'd all want to be a model Christian, shouldn't we? We 
We're not here on the earth for our satisfaction. We're here for the cause of Christ. So the only reason that I could think that a Christian would not want people to follow him or they wouldn't want to be a model is because they're living in sin and they don't want other Christians to follow them in their sin. But whether you like it or not, they will. And this happens a lot of times with Christian people that others will follow your example. And if they're not saved, looking at it from our side of things, from the human side of it, you can be the cause of someone never receiving Christ as Savior. And then if that person is saved, you can throw them off the track in their Christian discipleship and their Christian living and and they won't be as close to the Lord as they should be and they can be defeated in their faith because of you. So where do you want to be on that issue? And if you haven't thought of that and it really doesn't matter to you, then perhaps what you ought to do is go back and sit down with your Bible and read John three sixteen through 18 again and go to the epistle of 1 John and look at those proofs of true salvation and find out where you score there because that's something that you very seriously need to check out. Hebrews says, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. So inconsistency is a problem. And what it does, it doubles, it triples, it quadruples. The influence is widespread and untold damage can be done by Christians who are not careful about how they influence others. Well, before I leave this point, we need to look at this because we have examples of Peter's influence right here in the text. Verse 13, and other Jews dissembled likewise with him. Now, there, those are the same ones I mentioned a moment ago. The Jews in this church in Antioch saw Peter's example and they followed his example. And astonishingly, look who's next. And the other Jews dissembled likewise with him insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation. What? Barnabas? I mean, here's the one that went to Paul with Jerusalem and helped him to confront the Judaizers on these very issues. He confronted the hypocrites. Here's Barnabas that went with Paul on that first missionary journey. And what did they do? They established these Galatian churches that Paul is writing to. Here is Barnabas, who's supposed to be a stalwart of the faith, and now he follows Peter's example, and both of them shoot the gospel in the foot. So Paul, I think, must have said this with a lump in his throat. Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy too. This trusted friend of his helped Peter to undermine Paul's ministry. Now, I think there's two interesting things that come out of that admission, and the first would be Paul's rebuke showed that he was not weaker in Barnabas than in authority, and that's part of the issue we're dealing with, Paul's authority. You remember how at first that Barnabas was in charge? It was Barnabas that went and found Paul, brought him back from Tarsus and brought him into the ministry at Antioch. It was Barnabas that took Paul to Jerusalem and introduced him to the apostles there. So Barnabas at first was the prominent one. He was, if you look at scripture, you'll notice times that he's listed first. It's Barnabas and Paul instead of Paul and Barnabas. He was was the leader at first, but now... Paul shows that he's not behind Barnabas in authority. But then there's a second item of consideration, and this this is somewhat speculative. 
But there are some who believe that this very well could have been part of the contention between Paul and Barnabas before the second missionary journey. And you remember that they couldn't go together. They had an argument and uh, they split up. They had a hot dispute over John Mark, who not incidentally was Peter's nephew. And so some think that, well, this is part of it, that Paul had lost confidence in Barnabas' decision-making. But in any case, this is a warning to us that we need to be careful about testimony. Be careful all the time to guard your actions. And you think about Peter. I mean, was here a man that maliciously tried to undermine the gospel of Christ? I don't think so. He wasn't doing this on purpose. But what happened was that Satan found an issue with him. Satan found that there was pride in Peter, and he, and he just worked on that. It was weakness, and Peter gave in to it. Now, that's not an excuse. Uh, it happens, but it's not an excuse. Well, lastly, we need to consider, fourthly, the courage of Paul. But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. In verse 14, but when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, If thou, being a Jew, livest after the manner of the Gentiles, and not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? Well, is this rebuke by Paul such a big deal? Well, it's big enough that, that Paul used it as a major point of his argument to defend his apostleship. And we've already talked about Peter's stature. He was a leader. He had been since the very early days of Jesus' ministry. In verse number 9, Paul called him one of the pillars of the church. So Paul is the one who's the Johnny-come-lately. He's the upstart. When he was introduced to the leaders in Jerusalem, they were skeptical of him. Now you think about what Peter was worried about. Peter's worried that eating with Gentiles is going to hurt his stature with the people back in Jerusalem. But think of the risk that Paul took when he took on Peter. He's, he's up against the guy who has the most influence of all. And if Peter wasn't open to this rebuke and there had been a knockdown, drag-out fight over this and they parted company over it, how much influence do you think Paul would have any longer with any of the apostles in Jerusalem? This was a courageous move by Paul. But I also think that it was a Holy Spirit-directed move. You know, a few weeks ago, I was speaking with someone in the office that reminded me of how we have to depend upon God's movements when we're fearful that our actions will bring unintended or undesired consequences. Now, we have to understand that God rules and God overrules. And we ought not to be fearful that when we do the right thing that the church is going to be hurt or the church is going to be brought down Because if it's God's will, it will be done. This is an issue of truth. And this is when you stand up for what's right and you know that God will make the truth prevail. And you just do it and you let God deal with the consequences. You may be afraid to stand up for what's right. and You're afraid somebody's going to get angry, going to ruffle feathers. Doesn't matter. You do what's right and let God deal with all the fallout of it. So what happens then if he loses all the support in Jerusalem? Is that bad for him? Well, uh, we would think so, but listen to what he says. He says uh, this this to Timothy, and Paul is nearing the end of his life. He wrote to him, and he said, At my first answer, no man stood with me. Here's Paul, deserted by everybody. 
but all men forsook me. I pray, God, that it may not be laid to their charge. Notwithstanding, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, that by me the preaching might be fully known, and that all the Gentiles might hear, and I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. So do you think that Paul was afraid to stand up to Peter? Was he afraid of the consequences? Not really. That wasn't an issue to him. And that's because he was right, and he knew the Lord was on his side. Now, we notice some things about this. First of all, the rebuke was strong. He said, I withstood him to the face. Now, that means that he went up against Peter man to man. He wasn't malicious about it. He didn't angrily attack him. I don't think that Paul talked down to him like he was an inferior. I don't think he treated him like he was spanking a child. But it was a strong rebuke, and that's because he didn't allow anything to be swept under the rug. He didn't allow any excuses from Peter. Verse number 14 shows that the rebuke was public. I said unto Peter before them all. Peter's action was a public action, and so it had to be addressed publicly. You know, there are a lot of folks in the clergy, quote, quote, clergy, that are afraid of the publicity of sin. They don't want to air out the theological linen in public. But the Bible teaches that there are sins that need to be treated publicly. Sometimes people will do things secretly and nobody really knows what they're doing and the church may find out about it. And when we deal with it, we don't deal with those sins publicly. Uh, I don't think it's best a lot of times to shout out what somebody's done. So we may handle things discreetly and that person repents and nobody actually knows the details. But there are other sins that have to be dealt with openly because they've been committed openly. And so what we do as a church is we call for public repentance. I mean, it's a teaching tool. Discipline is a teaching tool. If someone lives openly, for instance, in adultery, what do you do with a person like that? Well, you demand that they come and repent before the church. You don't sweep those kinds of things under the rug. Now, you tell me when the last time that you went to church and saw anything like that happen. Now, most of the time, we don't get to deal with it, actually, because people that do these things, they won't, they won't really listen to the church anyway, so they don't come, lots of, lots of times, they don't come back and repent. And so they just go off, and some other church will take them in because they really don't care. They don't deal with discipline at all. Well, most churches don't do this, but I'm not going to argue with God about it. This is what Jesus taught that we were to do in Matthew chapter 18. He said, there are sins that you bring before the church. The Apostle Paul, in dealing with the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, had a man that was guilty of a sexual sin. And Paul said, put him out of the church. And he wrote the letter to the Corinthian church, which was a letter that was to be read by all of them. It was a public thing. So Paul brought this sin out publicly. He didn't go and talk behind Peter's back. He didn't whisper behind the scenes. And this is a lot of times what people do is they find out something wrong and rather than dealing with it as a church matter and taking where it's supposed to go, they get together and they whisper behind everybody's back and they get their clique together and just cause more problems than you know what to do with. That's not how you handle things in a church. You bring these kinds of things to the leadership and, you, and we make these kinds of decisions what needs to be done about discipline. So you handle these things in a godly way. And that's what Paul did when he confronted Peter with his sin. He brought it to the church. Now notice also that Paul's purpose in this was instructive. The rebuke was instructive. 
What is the purpose of a church dealing with sin? Is it to hurt people? Are we cruel to people when we confront their sins? We're not trying to be harmful. We're trying to be helpful. So if you can turn a sinner from the error of his way, is that harmful or is that helpful? When you instruct the whole church and how to deal with discipline, is that harmful or is it helpful? James said, Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth and one convert him, let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. We discussed this scripture several weeks ago in the forum class. And then I told you that I think that this scripture is mainly applicable to the lost. But there is an application for believers as well. And that is when you bring a sinner to repentance, when you bring a church member to repentance, you also bring them to forgiveness. You bring them to a blessing. And there's really nothing that a pastor wants more than a blessed congregation joyfully serving the Lord. I don't know, some of you might be out there tonight and you're kind of wiping your brow and worried, has he got somebody in mind here? Who who are we about to come down on in the church? And I don't know, maybe some people get a little bit worried. Has he found out something I'm doing? No, I'm not talking about any particular. I'm just giving giving you principles right now, just principles. So you know what happens then when a when a church tries to preserve peace with everybody and they compromise the truth to do it? What, what happens if Peter just, or Paul just skips this little problem, little problem with Peter? What if he just decides to avoid the controversy? And I said, let's don't ruffle any feathers over this. Don't get anybody too upset about it. Just kind of let it die down, sweep it behind the, under the rug or whatever. What happens? What happens when churches do that? Well, you get wishy-washy, worldly churches. They make peace with each other, and they make peace with the devil, but they have no peace with God. Now, this is a matter of doctrine. In fact, this is a doctrine that affects the eternal soul. All teachings of the church aren't like that. There are lots of doctrines that have no effect on your eternal soul. All doctrines are not equal doctrines, and so we don't treat all doctrines in exactly the same way. Now, what we try to do, every subject that we approach, we want to know the truth about it, and we study it out in order that we might teach truth. But the plain truth is that all doctrines are not something that's going to bring down the Christian faith and destroy salvation. But folks, here is one that will. This is it. This is the big one. I mean, this is, I'm coming home, Elizabeth, whatever that is. You know, I've dated myself a little bit with that. But... This is the big one here. This, this is the one that really counts. It's the core doctrine of Christianity. You can't mess up on this. And so what we do with this is we fight it tooth and toenail. We don't care whose feelings we hurt. If it bothers somebody, so what? We don't care whose peace that we break with this. It's a fundamental doctrine. It can't be touched. And if you try it, we're going to confront you. Not angrily, but sternly and insistently. And instructively, Jude said, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. You know what Jude saw in the churches when he wrote that? He saw that there were some that had lightly passed over doctrine. He saw that there were some that wouldn't say anything about false doctrine. 
And so rather than to write to them about peace and joy and harmony and the blessedness of the common salvation, he said, what I really need to write to you about is to earnestly contend for the faith. Read his letter and see how he dealt with that and how he developed the thought. He wasn't in favor of peaceful coexistence with doctrinal error. And so whether it's the preacher or in the pew, we confront error with truth. Now, one last comment, and I'll be through, and that's Peter's reaction to the rebuke. What's Peter's reaction? Well, Paul withstood him to the face, and so what did he do? What could he do? Because he already knew in his heart what was right. Peter was a saved man. He was led by God, just as Paul was. He was in error, and so when he was confronted with his error, what's he going to do? Well, there's nothing he can do but to admit it. He knew what he believed in his heart. What he has to do here now is get the practice in line with the principle. Make sure that what he does is actually what he believes. And he did that. He wrote two letters in the New Testament, and they deal with salvation and Christian living. In those letters, he called Paul his beloved brother, and he said, you know something? That guy writes Holy Spirit-inspired scripture. He was helped, not hurt. And that's because Paul saw his error and was brave enough to tell him about it. See, this is a great passage. A lot of things that can be learned here. Galatians is a great book. Doctrinal truth and practical truth come together in this book. A lot that we can learn from it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, everyone who's come out tonight to hear the word preached and explained. Uh, We appreciate our church so much and the interest that folks have in the word of God we could lightly pass over many of these things and barely mention them not even thinking about the implications of what's been said here but Lord we don't think that would be the right thing to do we want people to understand the word of God and get a feel for what how things work why you say what you do and why you've recorded these things for us Lord bless our our people we're again we're so thankful for them And uh, Lord, we pray you bless this church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.